Well, we'll just give the children a moment to bottleneck through the stairs there. Thank you, Father. Well, let's go to prayer. Father, we just thank you that this is another day that we have the freedom to be able to worship you. We thank you that we have the freedom just to open your word and to receive from you this day. That you said where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, there is freedom. And so we thank you, Father, that there's freedom in this place right now. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you take hold with us as we open the word that you inspired this morning. We thank you that revelation knowledge flows, that you do what uh, Jesus said you did in the book of John, that you show us things to come. You bring things to our remembrance. You lead us into paths of peace, and you show us how to glorify the Father. And so we thank you, Holy Spirit, for that, and we release you to do your work, and we give you the space to do so. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Well, how's everybody doing this morning? Man, hasn't that just been one glorious weekend out there? Oh, my goodness, that's great weather. You know, this is my favorite time of year. I absolutely love fall. We get the warm days and the cool nights. I love when you get out of bed in the morning. It's just like, whoo, chilly, get a sweater. That's like my favorite time of year. And I love seeing the, the, the leaves change. But we've been working on a series now for the last two weeks. This is week number three called Foundation. And when we started off this series two weeks ago, we said that you don't think, if we think naturally about your house, you don't give any thought to your foundation until you have a problem with it, right? You know, when we moved into our, the house that we live in right now, we'd been in it about two weeks, and I was sitting on the couch, just we'd still unpacking boxes, and I was taking a break, and we have, we have these big bay windows in the front of our house, and I see our oldest son, Harrison, walk by with the downspout from our ease trough. And I didn't think much of it, I just said, hey, go put that back. And I didn't, I should have had a dad moment and been like, make sure he puts that back. And that night we had torrential downpours. And so everything was pooling around the corner of one of our houses and we woke up with inches of water in our house, basement. And I was like, wow, we've got foundation issues. But when it comes to our foundation in life, we don't often give it the same consideration until the hard times come. And so we've been preaching out of Matthew chapter 7, and it says this, these words that I speak to you are not incidental additions to your life. These are not add-ons. He says they're not homeowner improvements to your standard of living. They are, everyone say this with me, foundational words to build a life on. And he says, if. The next statement is if. Now, come on, what is if? If is a conditional statement. And we will find throughout the New Testament, Jesus has a whole bunch of them and Paul has a whole bunch of them, where there is a condition placed upon it. We know that it's the finished work of Jesus, as we were just exhorting you a minute ago, but there's things that if you don't choose to walk in them, they will not benefit you. We often think that whatever God wants to happen is just going to flow into our lives. But we see throughout the New Testament, he said, no, if you believe this, if you walk in this, then. And so this is one of those statements Jesus is making. He says, if you work these foundational words into your life, you are like a smart carpenter who built his house on solid rock. 
and the rain poured down, the river flooded, the tornado hit, but we know what happened, right? But nothing moved that house. It was fixed on the rock. But then he says, but if you just use my words in Bible studies and you don't work them into your life, you're like a stupid carpenter. And I think nobody wants to be a stupid carpenter. I, I've been doing a lot of renovations on my house, and whenever we start a project, I do as much research as possible to find out what is the best way to do this and what is the right way to do this. And so this is our second house that we're renovating. And as you open up the walls, you find out years of people not doing it the right way. And so Jesus is giving a contrast between two types of people. One he said is a smart carpenter and one he likened to a stupid carpenter. And he says, who built his house upon the sandy beach and when the storm rolled in and the waves came up, it collapsed like a house of cards. So both foundations experienced the same thing. Both had the rains. Both had the wind. Both had the tornado hit. But we had two different responses to them. One was fixed solid and one collapsed. And I've heard this, this series of, from Jesus preached by many different people and they likened it, this is what happens to Christians and this is what happens to unbelievers. But this is not what Jesus is contrasting. He is contrasting believers. There's two types of believers. There's those who take the word of God and make it their foundation. And then there's those who know the word of God. They've heard it. They can quote it to you, but they've never done anything with it. It was never applied to their foundation. And so the response that we see from the storm is the one who actually applied was the one who actually survived. And when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. And I love that because whenever you preach a message, you want people to be like, oh, that was great, not, oh, that sucked. And so Jesus preached one of his good ones here, and the people were amazed at his teaching. And it says, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike their teacher's of religious law. So we see the contrast here, even in the same, same context, Jesus preached and they were like, wow, he actually believes and uses what he's saying, quite unlike these religious teachers. So they recognized the difference in the way Jesus was speaking to them. But when we think of that word authority, most people think he spoke with power and unction and conviction. But the word that is used there in the Greek is the word exousia, which actually means power of choice or the liberty of doing as one pleases. And so what they recognized about Jesus is he wasn't doing it out of obligation. He was doing it because he wanted to be doing it. And we see this statement that Jesus makes throughout his life. He says, I only do what I see my Father in heaven do. He was looking at God and saying, what's the best way I can take this and do something with it? And that is what the, the position of the word in our lives. When we are going through the word and we're, we're learning, we need to stop and say, what is the best way I can now take that and apply it to my word? Because knowledge without application will always lead to frustration. 
you'll find yourself going round and round the mountain, going through the same types of problems and having the same result, saying, why is it never getting any better? And God is saying, well, there is a better way. It happens to be my way, and I wrote it down in the word for you. And so Jesus is supposed to be the foundation of our lives and not an add-on. And we told you in week number one that there's three foundations that most people base their life on. First being family and culture, because your family gets you first. They are the most influential people in your life. They get you when they're a baby, and they get to program you whether you like it or not. And so we often hear statements like, like father, like son, or, oh, the apple doesn't far, fall, far, fall far from the tree. Why do they say that? Because they see what the pa- parents believe and what the parents do and how the parents act and how the parents speak is, gets reflected into the children. And a lot of people talk about generational curses, and I don't call them curses. I call it influence. And that can be broken by the word of God. You can have a new mirror to look at, a new reflection to copy. But we can also be reflections of culture around us. We see that, I told you, that we have five different generational cultures that are influencing different age groups and we live. And an 80-year-old thinks different, talks different than a 15-year-old. They have different influence. They've been raised on different things. And then there's, there's our environment, which would be our work background, our educational background, where we grew up in, our religion background. We have lar- large segments of the world that people are, uh, identify with a certain religion just because of where they grew up, not because they actually believe those things. We have over a billion people on earth that call themselves Christians but have never actually been in a church. That would be likened unto the second group. They have heard it. They've been to church on Easter and Christmas, but they've never done anything with it. And so that becomes an environmental influence. And then we have situational influences in our lives where maybe we've grown up with a happy background. We had a good childhood. We had a good mother and a father and maybe versus somebody else who grew up in a broken family and didn't have those good influence being poured into their life. Maybe they've come from a traumatic background. Maybe there was uh, uh, deaths in their lives. Maybe there was abuse. Whatever the factors are, these are the foundation that most people are drawing their decision-making process from. And whether you had a good background or whether you had a bad background, we have to all come to the conclusion that those are broken stones if they are not the foundation of Jesus. And so last weekend we started talking about mending stones and how when we take those three foundations, whether they were good and whether they were bad, and we put them on the foundation of Jesus, he begins to mend our wounds. He begins to mend our hearts. He begins to change the things that we've lived with for far too long. Because he told the Pharisees this in one of his conversations. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. The cornerstone is the first stone that goes in. It gets laid straight, it gets laid level, and everything else in the building is referenced off the cornerstone. If you have a poor cornerstone, you will have a poor building. If you have a good cornerstone, you will have a good building. And so if we take any of those other three foundations and make them the cornerstone of our lives, they will build a faulty building. But if we put Jesus first and allow his words to become our foundation, they begin to line everything else up 
even if you've spent 80 years with them being crooked, he can do something with them. And as what Peter said, he was actually quoting the Old Testament when he said this. He said, behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious stone, cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Wow. As good as my family has been, there's been disappointing times. As good as my education and my work experience have been, there's been disappointing times. The situations of my life which have been overly good, though they've been overly good, have been disappointing times. But I know my Jesus has never disappointed me yet. I love what David said reflecting back on his life. He said, I have never seen the righteous forsaken or begging for bread. And that's what Paul's picking out here. When Jesus is the cornerstone, everything else falls into place. And so last week when we talked about him mending the wounds of our hearts, we said that he always leads with love. And if you are feeling anything but the love of God when it comes to the wounds and hurts of your life, it's not him. If you're feeling condemnation and shame, it's not him. Romans 8.1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation is not the way God works. He doesn't use the baseball bat to put you in line. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave Jesus. His motivations are love, and they can't be anything but love because he described himself as nothing but it. God is love. And so if he's going to heal the wounds of your heart, he will always reach out with love. And so we looked at the woman at the, the Samaritan woman at the well, and we said that love crossed boundaries that most others wouldn't. Jesus went to Samaria. That's not a place Jews go. He found himself beside a well, and he strikes up a conversation with a Samaritan woman, and she's surprised because Jews don't talk to Samaritans. And so the love that Jesus was operating out of already caused him to step over the societal norms. And that the woman at the well was a deeply flawed woman, as we all are, and it didn't stop Jesus from engaging with her. Your sins will not keep Jesus from you, but religion will try to let, get you to use your, your sins to stay away from God. But ah, Hebrews says come boldly before the throne of grace where we will obtain mercy and help in our time of need. And so it engaged with the woman when all others would withdrew. She was drawing water at noontime, which was not the cultural time when you would draw water. You would do that in the morning so that you would have water for all your activities. So she had withdrawn from society, but it exposed the wounds of her heart without condemnation. Jesus simply said, go and get your husband. And she said, I don't have a husband. He said, that's right. You've had five. Jesus didn't go, woman, you know you're right. Five women, five husbands. How? Five, that's a lot of husbands. He didn't bring shame and condemnation to her. He just said, yeah, you spoke right. And then he went at healing the wounds. And in the end, the love he showed empowered her to reconnect with society. For once she was withdrawn, drawing her water at noon, the next moment she's running into town to tell everyone else, come and see the Messiah. 
And so when we allow love to mend the wounds of our hearts, it actually empowers us to go beyond what we've allowed ourselves to in the past. And so this morning as we continue on in this theme of letting him mend the wounds of our hearts, and I'll try and get my words from stumbling around here, I want to look at two stories this morning. And the first one is in Luke chapter 7. And in verse 36 it says, One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. So how is this leading with love? Well, who is the main antagonist in the story of Jesus? The Pharisees. They're the ones that are constantly contradicting him, trying to trap him in lies. They want to throw him off a cliff at one point, and they are the ones that put the whole scheme together to have him executed. So Jesus is already operating out of love by accepting the invitation. Because most people, they avoid their enemies, not Jesus. He gets an invitation from Simon. We don't fully know Simon's motivations out of this. But Jesus accepts the invitation. And while he's at Simon the Pharisee's house, this happens. Verse 37 says, when a certain immoral woman from that city. Okay, how would you like to be immortally written down as the immoral woman? (laughs) But there's more to that statement than you know. When we think of immoral, we're thinking, well, she's probably the town prostitute or something along those lines. But the word that is used in the Greek is hamartolos, which actually means she was in open rebellion against the law. So it's not that she was this this prostitute. It was that she had looked at the law and said, this is not for me. And at every point, if they told her to do something, she was doing the opposite. This term hamartolos is actually mostly used for tax collectors. We don't know if she was maybe married to one, but they they were going against the societal norm. If you were a tax collector, you were a traitor. You had betrayed your people and were working on behalf of the Roman government. And you were also lining your pockets while you were doing it. And so when they call this woman the immoral woman, it's not necessarily because she was a prostitute, but there's so many other things that could play into this word. But it says a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, and she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. And then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping, and her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair, and then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, now, when you say to yourself, what is it basically describing? This is your inner monologue. These are your thoughts. And so he says to himself, if this man was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this was touching him. She's a sinner. And the one thing that I really love in a lot of the stories of Jesus is the Holy Spirit reveals the thoughts of the people going on around him. This is not the only story that this happens in. And so Jesus answered his thoughts. Why? Because we often think that God only sees our actions and our words, and so we try to act proper in certain situations. 
When God sees the thoughts and the intents of our hearts, He doesn't only see what we do, He sees why we do it. And so the Holy Spirit brings something up to Jesus about the heart of Simon the Pharisee and what his inner thoughts are saying. And so he answers his thoughts and he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. And then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him. So whether it was the 50 or whether it was the 500, they were both lacking. So he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. And he asked the question to Simon, who do you suppose loved him more after that? Now, I don't think Simon was a stupid person. He was one of the rulers or leaders of the community. And so he quickly realized who the 500 debt was and who the 50 debt was. And you can see that in his answer. He says, he doesn't really want to answer. He says, I suppose the one whom he canceled the larger debt. He didn't want to flat out say it, who's going to love him more. And he said, that's right. And so then Jesus turned and said to, to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet. Now, we have to think about this for a second. This was Simon's invitation to Jesus. Now, we can kind of think about his motivations here. The people loved Jesus more and more and more. As his ministry went on, the crowds got bigger, people followed him more. And the, it, this scared the Pharisees because they're now following Jesus instead of them. So we can almost think here the reason why Simon wants to be seen with Jesus is because he wants to increase his own stature. But he doesn't actually like Jesus. He's wanting to use Jesus. So customs were, when someone comes to your house for a meal, you have the water pots ready. Because in the ceremonial cleaning of the Jews, they would do their regular ceremonial cleaning throughout the day, but then when they came in for a meal, they would wash their hands and they would wash their feet because they'd been walking on the dusty roads, they'd be the dirty thing. And to be presentable for, under the law, they needed to do that. And so Jesus coming into Simon's home, he doesn't even offer him water. And it says, but she washed them with her tears. And she wiped them with her hair. And he says, you didn't greet me with a kiss. Now, culturally, and it still happens in a lot of different cultures, when you greet someone, you give them a kiss on the cheek. Some cultures, it's two kisses. Some cultures, it's three. You go back and forth. So in the, t the time that this, t this story takes place, it would have been customary for the one receiving a guest to greet them with a kiss. We see this also reflected when Judas betrays Jesus. He comes to Jesus and greets him with a kiss. And so it shows that this man doesn't really want to be associated with Jesus in that much of a way. And so it says, you didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins and they are many. So Jesus wasn't under any illusions about who this woman was. He knew who she was, 
and what she had been doing, but that didn't stop him. He knew they were many, and he says, they have been forgiven. She was the 500 debt, and Jesus canceled them both. And he says, so she has shown me much love. That statement, much love, in the Greek is an interesting word. It means she has expressed her love out of her passion and out of her actions. You know, when you believe something in your heart and when you let it be established in your life, you react out of passion. It's easy even if we look at natural things. You can see people at your workplaces, they do things because they have to do them. And then there's the people who go the step beyond that. They're acting out of the conditions of their heart rather than the conditions of their obligation. Much forgiveness caused this woman to react with much love. And that's why Jesus leads with love. Because love sown breeds love. In every era of her life, joy sown reaps joy. Encouragement sown reaps encouragement. Peace sown reaps peace. Why do you think Jesus could get up in the middle of the storm while they're on the ship and the disciples are going, oh, we're all going to die, and Jesus stands up and says, peace, and the storm stops because he'd sown peace in his life and was reaping a harvest. And so Jesus had sown much love and received much love back. He says, but a person who is forgiven little shows only a little love. Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Now, both of the characters Jesus is interacting with, he forgave. Only one was walking in the acceptance of that forgiveness. I don't need to tell you which one it was. Verse 49 says, The men at the table said among themselves, Who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, he ignores the other conversation now going on. How dare he? Now, this is not the first time we've seen this. Jesus raises the man up off the bed who'd been lame, and he says, pick up your bed, your sins are forgiven. And they're like, who can forgive sins but God? Same situation. Everyone is offended by the love he shows and the forgiveness he extends. And religion will cause you to be offended when you should be celebrating because if he's forgiven her much, he's forgiven you as well. And so he always leads with love when wounding, or mending the wounds of your heart and he follows that up with forgiveness because forgiveness gives you freedom to change. And that's exactly what Jesus did when he came and died on the cross. He bore all sin and shame and he took it to the grave and killed it so that you could have change. Because if there's not forgiveness of sins, lives will repeat the same circles over and over again. But we see two different characters in this story. One forgiven much, one forgiven little. Both needed forgiveness. But one recognized that their foundation was worthless and the other thought it was worthy to stand on. Yeah. 
The stronger we perceive our natural foundation, the harder it is to let go of it. Which is why we see the largest life change in people when they've hit rock bottom. When they've realized everything I've known was worthless. And that's what Paul had found. He, he said last week to the Philippians that I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was in the right, born in the right tribe. I was circumcised on the right day. I had the right teachers. I did all the right things. I persecuted the church because that's what the law told me I should do. And then he said, and I count it all but garbage because Paul had that rock bottom experience on the road to Damascus. He thought he was operating on the moral authority. And then the light shined from heaven. He was knocked down to his feet. And God said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And in that moment, Paul realized, I'm on the wrong side of this fence. And he changed. One more story this morning. In Mark chapter 10, we have the story of the rich young ruler. Now, it's interesting just even when he's being called the rich young ruler because in that time you are more likely to be rich as an older person and be a ruler because of everyone else has died off so it's now fallen to you. But this was a young man. When they say young in the Bible, that means he was under 30. So he's done well for himself at an early age. Not only does he have money, but he also has a position of power that has him called a ruler. We don't know how big of a ruler he is, whether he's a governor of a region, whether he's just a ruler of a city. We don't know. It doesn't tell us. But it starts this way in verse 17 of chapter 10 in Mark. As Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him and he knelt down and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Now, the something we should know is that when you're, when you're rubbing shoulders with the upper echelon, you learn how to say the right thing the right way, even if you don't mean it. Insert politicians. <laughs> I digress. <laughs> so he comes to Jesus, and the first words out of his mouth is, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And most people like flattery. And that's why he started with good teacher, not just rabbi. He said good teacher. So he started trying to start off on the good foot, and Jesus isn't buying it. Why do you call me good? The rich young ruler's expecting someone to go, oh, someone appreciates me. They, they, they see the value in what I do. And Jesus is like, why do you call me good? Only God is truly good. And you can tell that this puts the rich young ruler back on his heels because there's no response. And Jesus, not willing to be played, now turns this around for a learning opportunity. And he says, but to answer your question, which really wasn't a real question, he wasn't really that interested. You know the commandments. You must not murder, you must not commit adultery, you must not steal, you must not testify falsely, you must not cheat anyone, honor your father and mother. Now, this is the one time that we see Jesus point back to the Ten Commandments. Why was he doing it in this situation? 
Well, contextually, you need to understand where they were. They are right near the city of Jericho. Why is that important? Jericho belonged to the Levites as an inheritance. So if anyone knows the law, it's supposed to be a Levite. They're the ones that are supposed to serve in the city or in the temple. They're supposed to represent the people to God, which also shows us a contradictory of who this man is. If he's a ruler of that region, a Levite is not supposed to own land or have money. They were supposed to be supported by the other tribes. Hmm, interesting. And so here Jesus points back to the Ten Commandments, and the response is, Teacher, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. Well, we can all just say horse poop on that. (laughs) Because if that was the case, Jesus didn't need to come. Surely there was a time when this boy, when he was young, sassed his mother. Every kid has done it, including Jesus, by the way. When his mother and father were looking for him, when he'd abandoned them at 12 years old and they found him teaching, and he says, mother or woman, what have I to do with you? Jesus sassed her there. And so surely at some point, this man has transgressed the law whether slight or whether large, and it doesn't matter if it's little or big, Jesus said if you've missed in one point, you've missed in them all, and that's why we are all in need of grace. And so this is a lie. He did not obey them since he was a kid. But looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. Why? Because he leads with love. And he recognizes this man thinks he's right. We've all met a lot. Everybody's met somebody who though sincerely wrong, they were least sincere about it. And so Jesus recognizes this man thinks he's in the right position. But then he points out the glaring issue with this man's life, that being a Levite, he shouldn't even have property and rulership and money. And so he says, go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come, follow me. This passage is actually not about money. Jesus doesn't tell anybody else to do this. He was exposing the heart of the rich young ruler. You're already transgressing the law by the way you're living, and you think your foundation is firm when it's not. And the man's face fell. Most people say, God, there's nothing I wouldn't do for you until you find the thing that you're not willing to do. And this man found that moment. Jesus exposed that until you deal with this issue of your heart, I can't be your foundation because it's already occupying that place. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And this amazed them. But Jesus said again, dear children, it's very hard to enter the kingdom of God. They're looking amazed at Jesus because as we preached in the summer, Jesus wasn't as poor as everyone made him out to be. Now we're not going to re-preach that one, but they're amazed because if he's like, if this man can't, how can you and how can me? And you got to understand, Peter and them were fishermen. They had their own business. They would have been able to supply. And so they're amazed 
at this statement. But Jesus goes further and he says, in fact, it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, this is not Jesus looking at a little needle thing, take this giant camel and shove it through there, that's how you get saved. No, he was referencing the night gate of Jerusalem, which was, if you came there at night, they don't want just anybody wandering in and out of the city at night because that's how bandits get in. That's how enemies come into your city. And so they would require anyone showing up at the night gate to be able to, it was only big enough that they could walk their camel or their donkey through after it had been unloaded. And so what he was saying is, in order to come into the kingdom, you need to unshackle yourself of everything else you declare of value. Now, most people look at it as, you have to leave it there. But what they would do is they would unload the camel, they'd bring it through, and then they would go back and carry it through. So Jesus was not saying, you have to give away everything you have. But the disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved, they asked. And Jesus looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, it's impossible. But with God, everything is possible. Meaning when your foundation is God, everything else doesn't matter. And Peter began to speak up and he says, well, we've given up everything to follow you, Jesus. Oh, Peter. I love Peter. You got to think how many times the other disciples shook their head. Peter, just shut up. <laughs> so he says, we've given up everything to follow you, Jesus. And just Jesus replied, I assure you that everyone who has given up house or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or property for my sake and for the, the good news, will receive, everyone say this word with me, now, not later, now, in return, hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and property, and along with persecution. You follow Jesus, you're going to get persecuted by those who don't. But he says, in this world to come, that person will have eternal life. Isn't what, what, that what the rich young Euler came seeking? He said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus says, when you unshackle yourselves of the other foundations that you try to stand on, if you let go of them, they will be restored and multiplied. And so we think, if I don't give my family value, if I don't give my work value, that I'm going to lose them. Actually, they say, you're going to become a better family. You'll become a better spouse, a better father, better mother, better sister, better brother. Yeah. With your foundation being on Jesus, Amen. then having them be a faulty foundation for you. So when we take those other things that we try to stand on and put them on top of Jesus, they actually get better. And what was a broken stone has now been mended and is worthy to put another stone on and another stone and becomes bigger and bigger. And so he leads with love and he follows with forgiveness. But why does he want to heal those other stones? 
If he's the good cornerstone, if he's the only worthy foundation, why does God want to heal those other stones of our lives? Well, because when you feel broken, you act broken. When you feel worthless, you act worthless. When you feel inadequate, you begin to act inadequate. But those aren't what Jesus has said about you. Colossians says that you are complete. So we need to align our words and our actions based upon what he said about us. I am complete. Why don't you say that with me? I am complete. What about this one? I am valuable. If you look at the parables of Jesus, you are the pearl without price. That he would do whatever he had to do to obtain you. He says that you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. He doesn't make garbage. So he sees you as valuable. He sees you with infinite worth, and there's nothing that he would not do. You're like that coin that got lost in the parable, and they swept the house, and they moved the furniture until they found it. You are valuable. You are enough. You're not inadequate. Says you are fearfully and wonderfully made. That he knew you even when you were in your mother's womb. That he has good plans filled with hope and a future for you. And so why does he want to heal these stones? Because when we look through a broken lens, everything looks broken. But he said, if you work these words into your life, You're like a smart carpenter who built his house on a solid rock. The rain poured down, the river flooded, tornado hit. And what happened to the house, everyone? It stood strong. So after he leads with love and follows it up with forgiveness, the if is your side becomes acceptance and application. If God says I'm worthy, then I see myself as worthy. If God says I'm valuable, I'm going to start talking to myself as though I'm valuable. I'm going to stop treating myself as worthless. You know, when we were preaching our series on David a few weeks ago, we quoted this out of James. It says, indeed, we all make many mistakes. Amen? For if we could control our tongues, we would be perfect and could control ourselves in every other way. But how many times do we talk negative about ourselves? How many times does everyone else have a better opinion of us than we do of ourselves? If you listen to what people say about themselves, it kind of makes you feel sad for them. But here James is saying, if we could control our tongues, we could be perfect in every other way. It says we can make a large horse go wherever we want by means of a small bit in its mouth. A small rudder rudder can make a huge ship turn wherever the pilot chooses it to go, even though the winds are strong. And he says, in the same way, the tongue is a small thing. It makes grand speeches. Some, Some people make grander speeches than others. But a tiny spark can set a great forest on fire. You can change the landscape of your life by how you begin to speak about yourself and to yourself, and how you speak to others as well. It says, let your words be seasoned with grace. Jesus said this, 
How can you, being evil, speak good things? You're not evil anymore. You've been accepted into the kingdom. You've been washed by the blood of Jesus. You've been forgiven. And it says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good things. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth evil things. But I say to you that every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it on the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. You know, there's a lot of weight in what Jesus just said there. We can be like, oh my goodness, I'm going to have to give account of what I've said. But I like David's approach better. He said this in Psalm 141. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the doors of my lips, and to keep them from speaking thoughtlessly. So I'm going to assign you homework this week. Here's what I would like you to do. I want you to take a look at yourself and say, what do my hurts say? They are saying something. You can usually find them by how you're talking to yourself. What do my hurts say? Then find the response. What does God, Jesus, the Word say about that area? Because often... They're speaking two different things. The enemy has often got us so wound up that we don't see how God views us. So I want you to write those down and write what you're wanting to say to yourself or about yourself. Why? Because if you write something down, you're actually 80% more likely to achieve it. Take those things that you're wanting to speak over yourself and for the next seven days, I want you to to speak them every morning to yourself. And if you need to remind yourself in the evening, go ahead and do that. But as he said, if you take these words and make them a foundation, they become a strong foundation. So no one will make you do this. Only you can do it. But let the Holy Spirit get involved. Say, Holy Spirit, what should I be speaking about myself? How do you view me? And he'll lead with love just like Jesus did. He'll show you the forgiveness you've already been given. And then all you'll have to do after that is say, I believe it, Jesus, and I'm going to apply it. Why don't you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that it would root down in our heart and become stable and established. We thank you that your word is an anchor and that it holds us firm. And right now, we just thank you for the love and forgiveness you've extended to us. Maybe you've been watching us this morning via the internet and you haven't made Jesus that firm foundation. We would love to pray with you right now. Don't give it another moment, another second, even longer. God's arms are wide open to you right now to receive him. So church, why don't you pray with me here and say, Father, I receive Jesus. I receive him as my Lord. I receive him as my savior, as my foundation. I receive your forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer with us this morning, I'd like you to get in contact with us so that we can get you hooked up with a good church in your area and get resources into your hands. But just remember, you are loved and accepted by the Father. And that goes for you guys here this morning as well. God loves you so much don't let anybody else tell you otherwise 
You're dismissed. Have a wonderful week, and we'll see you all soon.